Good morning, Foothills Church. My name is Avery Parks, and today's scripture is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Please stand for the reading of God's word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one with a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you, I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes to all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to the heavens, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Avery. All right. Well, hey, just a moment ago, I mentioned how uh, through the Senate campaign, we were able to support church plants. And three years ago, some of you remember, we were able to plant uh, Travis Cunningham, and now he's come back home uh, to come and preach for us. So uh, would you please welcome Travis up on the stage? That's it? That's it? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. That is the best intro I've ever heard at, for someone visiting a place. Uh, hey, it is so good to be with you, Foothill Church. Uh, if I've not met you and there are some new faces that I was recognizing out there, uh, as Brian said, my name is Travis Cunningham. I'm the founding and lead pastor of Story Church over in Rancho Cucamonga, and we are a product of Foothill Church. And so I would be remiss if I didn't start out uh, just by saying thank you. Um, as you give to the SEND campaign, uh, everyone, as you participate in that, we are direct beneficiaries of that. Uh, and it's not just your finances, it's also your prayer and your encouragement. And Pastor Chris and, and Michelle have been close to Katie and I, and we are just so grateful to God for Foothill Church. You guys have been so gracious to us. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I am married to Katie. We have two kids, uh, and when we left, uh, who was at the Citrus College sending service about three years ago? I mean, how amazing was that? Like, that was the coolest thing I've ever been a part of. Uh, and, and, and so when, I, when that, was, that was my last Sunday gathering with Foothill Church, I had hair, I had glasses, I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And since then, I have lost all of my hair. I have had LASIK surgery, and our kids are now seven and five. And life just goes on. And you're doing the math right now. They just had a birthday. Uh, yes, two days ago. Uh, my son did, actually. And so, hey, we are going to be in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, if you haven't flipped there yet, uh, go ahead and grab your way over there. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Now, when Pastor Chris asked me to preach when he was on sabbatical, he told me I had 40 to 45 minutes. And this week, uh, it went from 40 to 35 to 30, all the way down to 25. And that phone call came from Ike, which I'm guessing means that the worship pastor just needs more time, you know? The, <laughs> he, he just needs some more songs, right? You know, I, I know how that goes. The preaching and worship are all always supposed to uh, vie for time, but uh, I'm going to do my best. I was up early this morning trying to edit a 40-minute sermon down to 25, so we're going to fly together. And kiddos, I'm so glad you're in here. I should have wore my PJs. I didn't. Let's go ahead and get moving here. We live in a comparison-based culture. We know that, right? Let, let me just provide a silly example as a way to break the ice. Uh, I'm not an animal person, 
but let's just say I were an animal person. If I were, I would 100% be a dog person, okay? And yeah, like there's, there's, there's one, that's Jess right there. Uh, I am not a cat person. Like cats, like I know I'm going to offend some of you with this, but they just they kind of stink, right? Like they're just not great. So here's what I would do in this comparison-based culture. I, I would look at you and I would say, listen, I'm a dog person. You're a cat person. I'm right. You're wrong. Dogs are fun. They're lovable. They treat you well. They want your love. They run to you. They're excited when you get home from work. Cats are the exact opposite of that. They're kind of elitist. They're a little bit uppity. They hide under the bed. When you get home, they're like, finally, my master or my servant, I should say, is back home because the cat is always the master in the home. Now, what I'm doing there is I'm making a comparison and we're standing on two separate sides of the fence and I am judging you as being wrong for being a cat person and me being right for being a dog person. Now, that's silly, but the comparison thing is happening all around us. This is the culture that we live in. Let me give some examples for us. Maybe there's a, a divide across a fence on being educated versus uneducated, right? The educated people stand on their side of the fence and they say, I'm so smart. Look at what I've done. I'm intellectually capable. You're wrong for not pursuing an education. On the other side, the uneducated people are saying, listen, you're, you're again, you're just elitist. You think you're better than the rest of us. And we are pronouncing judgment upon each other. And it goes much further than that. We're talking about political division, Republicans declaring Democrats wrong and Democrats declaring Republicans wrong, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, mask versus unmasked, white versus black versus brown versus Asian, homeschool versus private school versus public school, all of these things that we're going to make comparisons of how someone is living their life and we are going to judge them as being wrong and ourselves as being right based upon the decisions that we have made. Now here's something that happens. There's something really sinister that happens when we play this comparison game. We, we are not only declaring something about them, we are also declaring something about ourselves. Here's what I mean by that. In pronouncing judgment on other people, we are also pronouncing judgment on ourselves. We are saying you are unrighteous and I am righteous. Now, we may think that the Bible is archaic and old and dated. It's not culturally relevant to our moment, but this comparison game has been going on. I mean, shoot, we can go all the way back to Cain and Abel, but we see it right here in the parable of Jesus. Look back at verse nine with me. He, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. There were a group of people who were declaring themselves to be self-righteous and people on the other side of the fence, another group of people to be unrighteous and to be treated with contempt. You're right, or you're wrong, I'm right. But there's a fundamental flaw in this comparison game that we are playing. We are playing this comparison game horizontally. We are comparing ourselves with other humans when, when the scriptures will say, okay, if you want to play the comparison game, let's go ahead and play that game vertically rather than horizontally. And here's what happens. We begin to compare ourselves to the God of the universe, the one who created everything from nothing, the one who is sovereign over all things, the one who is spotless and blameless and holy and righteous and perfect and loving and kind and gracious. The scriptures will say, hey, compare yourself vertically. And then here's what happens. We realize 
We're just sinners. We realize we are fallen. We fall short of the glory of God. We do not reach the mark. And so we're going to consider in this parable, what does that look like? What does it look like for us not to play the comparison game horizontally, but to play it vertically with the God of the universe? And here's the main point for the morning. We all, every one of us, come here sinners. And we all, every one of us, can go home justified. We all come here sinners, and we can all go home justified. Now, here's going to be the movement as we go through the text. We're going to look at sinner number one. We're going to look at sinner number two. We're going to look at sinners standing before God, and then we're going to look at what it, look, what it means to go home justified. You guys there with me? We good? Ready to roll? All right. I've trained Story Church to be responsive, and so listen, I'm going to need some noise out of you guys. Thank you, Ike. I'm cutting into those 25 minutes hard right now. Go ahead and cut a song, Ike. We're going to do this. I'm messing with you. Now, uh, I'm a geek, and one of my favorite things growing up, I used to love watching the Game Show Network with my mom. Any, Any other Game Show Network fans out there? We got one in the back, two, three, four, something like that. Now, one of the ones I remember watching was Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall. You guys remember his catchphrase, right? The, stand, the person would stand up there and there'd be three doors and they'd have to choose the door. He'd say, door number one. And what would he say? Come on, Come on. what's behind door number one? Like in the door would slide open. Now, as we look at our text, we're going to look at sinner number one. Who is the sinner standing behind door number one? And I want us to consider it might be you. It might be me. Let's look at verses 10 through 12 together. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Now, what makes Mr. Pharisee sinner behind door number one? Because as I look at the text, I'm thinking, man, this guy doesn't look like a sinner. He's praying. He says he's not extorting people. He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer. He's not like the the other people in the temple, and he's certainly not like the tax collector that he walked in the door with. And you want a cherry on top? Well, he fasts twice a week. Like, I don't even fast twice a year. He He gives tithes of all that he gets. How can he be sinner behind door number one? Well, the reason why Mr. Pharisee is a sinner is because he thinks what he does or does not do is what makes him righteous. And if you look beneath the surface, we can see how truly sinful that type of sin is. You see, the the actual imagery of what's going on here, if you dig into the original language, is that Mr. Pharisee walked into the temple and he's actually addressing himself in prayer. He is standing in the middle of the temple and he is praying loudly because he wants other people to hear what he's saying. He wants other people to admire him and to be impressed with his, his spiritual resume, so to speak. And so here's what he's doing. Mr. Pharisee is praying loudly. He's addressing himself and he's praying about himself. I mean, look at all the eyes in this. God, I thank you that 
I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He is praying to himself about himself, praising the work that he himself has done. The way in which he is addressing God is subtle, but it's glib. It's almost like God can be a peeping Tom to the conversation he is having with himself. God, look at my resume. Aren't you impressed with me? Friends, this is called legalism. Legalism is simply declaring yourself righteous by what you do or what you do not do. It is through your own work that you can find yourself justified and saved. And notice how he is, he is basing his righteousness on comparison. I'm not like these other men. I'm not like this tax collector I walked in with. Relatively speaking, I am a pretty good person. So what I want to do is rip that situation off the page and place it in this room. Because perhaps, again, it is you or I standing behind door number one. We are Mr. Pharisee ourselves. So let me try and write a prayer that we might pray if we are legalistic and self-righteous. God, I thank you that I am not like the people of Glendora. You see, God, those people, they're liars. They're cheaters. They fudge the numbers on their tax returns. They're perverts and addicts. I thank you that I'm not like those people. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people of Foothill Church. I mean, I show up not every four to six weeks like everyone else. I'm here every two to three weeks, as if that's good attendance. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other lazy covenant partners at Foothill Church. I'm in a growth group. I already signed up for one of Gannon's classes. I'm going next Sunday to Jared Wilson's thing. I show up for prayer night. I pray for my pastors. And God, I even give sometimes when I have a little bit extra. God, I, I thank you I'm not like everyone else who sits and they're just a bunch of consumers. I mean, I serve on the usher team once every three to four years. Look around, God. Don't you see what kind of rock star I am in comparison to these other people? If that is our thought process, then we are Mr. Pharisee standing behind door number one. Why? Your religious activity cannot save you. You have to understand this, friends. Listen, everything that I just listed, attendance, giving, serving, growth group, covenant partnership, every bit of that, where your pastors call you to participate in that, I sure hope you are doing that. All of that is good for you, but you have to hear me. Those things are designed for your sanctification, not your salvation. Those things are designed to grow you and conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. None of those things are designed to save you because those things can't save you. Your religious activity cannot save you. The scriptures, as a matter of fact, say your religious activity is filthy rags to God. You cannot make yourself righteous no matter how long you work, no matter how hard you try, and no, ma how, no matter how good you think you are in comparison to other people. And all Mr. Pharisee was doing was piling up more religious activity and moral brownie points to try to achieve what Christ has designed for him to receive. 
He was trying to achieve through his works what is a free gift of grace. You have to understand that salvation comes by grace alone, through, through Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. Now imagine with me that salvation were a potluck. Okay, potlucks are kind of dated, but it works. Right, God says, hey, come to this salvation potluck. And you say, okay, I want to be a good guest. What do you want me to bring, God? What, what, what dish should I bring? And God says, listen, I provide everything. All you bring is your sin. That's the only dish you bring to the potluck party. And God says, everything else is mine, and I'm freely giving it to you. You see, Mr. Pharisee is a legalist trying to save himself through his own activity. He is sinner behind door number one. Are you? Is your sense of righteousness derived from your behavior? Is your assurance of your salvation coming from how good you think you are in comparison to other people? If so, you are sinner behind door number one. And you came in here a sinner. Now, let's look at sinner number two. Let's keep moving here. Again, I only have 25 minutes, so a lot more to say there, but we're just going to keep plowing ahead, okay? So we don't want to be that. We don't want to be Mr. Pharisee. We want to be legalist, trying to earn our salvation through our works. So let's go ahead and swing the pendulum to the other extreme. Let's be on the other side, right? Wrong. Sinner behind door number two is the tax collector. Just the first part of verse 13, but the tax collector. Let's stop right there. Let's talk about tax collectors. And I'm going to go ahead and rename him Bob because I don't want to say tax collector on repeat. Bob could not be more different than Mr. Pharisee. Okay, so Bob would have been a native Jewish man who worked on behalf of the Roman Empire. So what the tax collector did, what Bob did, was he set up his booth at the entrance of the town, and he was tasked by the Roman Empire to collect taxes that the Jewish people owed to Rome and to Caesar. And, and Bob would have been seen as a traitor by the rest of his Jewish kin. You see, Bob left his religion, and he left his family, and he did it all to work for the evil empire. And on top of that, Bob would have taxed people more than they actually owed back to Rome. And what Bob would do was take that extra on top from the taxes and he would pad his own pockets with the money and he would bankroll himself. So not only did Bob tax people on behalf of Rome, but he also extorted them. He was the extortionist and the unjust person that Mr. Pharisee just prayed about. And Bob would go home and he would take that extra cash and he would get the bigger house. He'd build the pool and he'd grab himself that new electric Bronco and he would show it off throughout town. And everyone else in the city knew that's my money paying for that. He's a traitor. And here's the thing about tax collectors. The scriptures teach that Bob and tax collectors would have been happy in their sin. They would have flaunted their sin. They would have flaunted the, how wrong they knew they were. This is called licentiousness. If legalism is you trying to earn your salvation through your works, then licentiousness means you don't care about good deeds. You don't care about holiness. You don't care about God and his standards and obedience to him. And friends, if that's you, you're sinner behind door number two. 
So again, I want to rip this situation off the page and place it in this room because I don't, there's probably no tax collectors in here and none of you work for Rome. But, but listen, Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, will outline for us what licentiousness looks like. Listen with me. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some of these things are big and obvious and they kind of slap us in the face, right? Sexual immorality, rivalry, division, that's obvious to us. But there's stuff in here that's a little more subtle. Fits of anger, jealousy, strife, impurity. We, if we are pursuing these things with no desire to put these things to death by the grace of God, then we are nothing more than Bob in our day and age. We are happy in our sin. We are okay with disobeying God. We have no concern with growing to look like Jesus Christ. We are just okay with the status quo, despite how sinful I might be. Again, my question is, is this you? Are you okay with your sin? Do you think you can manage your sin? Do you think you can sweep your sin under the rug? Do you think that your evil is okay and you're bragging about it? If so, you're Bob and you came in here a sinner. So we have the legalistic sinner, Mr. Pharisee. We have the licentious sinner, Bob. How do sinners stand before God? It's the next point we're going to look at. Because as I read this text, it looks like Bob gets some good things and Mr. Pharisee gets condemned. Read verses 13 and 14 with me. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's the difference here? Why does Bob go home justified, but the other, Mr. Pharisee, does not? Well, verse 14 tells us, that Mr. Pharisee walked into that temple full of pride. He was exalting himself, and God says, pride comes before the fall. I will humble you. While Bob comes in humbled, standing far off, not lifting his eyes, beating his breast, crying out to God. Every one of us in this room came in here as sinners, and every one of us should be in this room like Bob. We should not act like Mr. Pharisee coming in here flaunting our spiritual resumes, but rather we should be like Bob. Oh my goodness, Lord, you have been so so good to me. 
How can I be glib with you, God? How can I try and put a resume before you, God? I am so humbled that you would be kind and gracious and merciful to me. And for us to understand that, we have to understand the nature of God and the nature of man. You see, the scriptures teach us the nature of God, that he is holy and spotless and without blemish that he is righteous in his wrathful judgment, that he has set the standard for how this world should work. And anything that is not perfect and holy will be consumed by his holy fire. Our God is perfect. He is totally other than us. And then the scriptures teach us about man, that everything God is, we are not. We are by birth and nature sinners. We are idolaters and rebels. We are adulterers and gossips. We are slanderers and liars. We are drunks and we are addicts. And we fall woefully short of God's holy standard. And anything that is not perfect in the perfect presence of God will be swallowed up by his righteousness. It reminds me of the story of the Israelites transporting the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, back to the promised land. You see, God designed for them very specific ways in which they are to carry the Ark. And as they were transporting the Ark back to the promised land, it began to wobble and tip. And one of the men reached out his hands to steady the ark so it wouldn't fall on the ground. And in that very moment, as he touched the presence of God, he dropped dead because he was a sinner in the presence of God. And R.C. Sproul commenting on that story, he says, that man assumed he was cleaner than the ground upon which the ark would fall. In the presence of God, we will be consumed. How? How then do we go home justified? How then do we not get swallowed up? How can we come into this place singing God's praises, knowing that whether I'm legalist or a licentious person, then then I'm not getting swallowed up? How, God, am I not being swallowed up? Well, that brings us to our final point, going home justified. I'm broken I'm a sinner. I fall short. I'm I'm sinner behind door number one, Mr. Pharisee. I'm sinner behind door number two, Bob. I can conclude I'm a sinner. And because God is holy, he's going to destroy me. But I don't want that. How does that change? Look at the content of Bob's prayer. Verse 13. The tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, if you struggle to pray, tattoo that on your forearm and pray that. This is one of the most beautiful prayers in all of scripture. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Bob begs God for his mercy. And the Greek word there for mercy, it's a verb and it's holoskomai. Holoskomai can be translated be merciful or it can be translated provide atonement. Atonement is the way in which fallen sinners can be in the presence of a holy God. There are two components scripturally to atonement. There is propitiation and there is expiation. 
Okay, I'm going to explain those. Kiddos, pay attention here. Propitiation simply means to appease or to satisfy. In the work of propitiation, we satisfy God's demands of holiness. Expiation means to cleanse or to cover. We are cleansed of our sin and we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when Bob is praying, God have mercy on me, a sinner, he is saying, God, cleanse me. God, cover me. God, make me new. God, appease your standards. God, satisfy your demands for me. God, he is saying, may I be pleasing in your sight. May I be cleansed of my sin. Now, in order to understand atonement, we would have to do some Old Testament work. But again, Ike gave me 25 minutes, so I can't. <laughs> Particularly, we would be in the book of Leviticus. Now, if you're in an annual Bible reading plan, you're going to hit Leviticus, and you're going to give up. Don't. Please don't. It is such a beautiful book. For, for us understanding the nature of atonement, we have to understand Leviticus. So let me just do a flying overview of what's going on. In Leviticus chapter 10, the two sons of Aaron, who is the high priest, they perform an unacceptable sacrifice. They try to enter into the Holy of Holies without following God's design for doing that. And again, they drop dead in the moment. And so God reiterates to Moses and to Aaron, here's the way in which you get into my presence. And the way it happened was Aaron, the high priest, would have to perform multiple sacrifices. The first one would be the bull sacrifice. In the bull sacrifice, he would sacrifice the bull on the altar and the blood spilled would provide propitiation for Aaron. God would be pleased with Aaron because of his sacrifice of that bull so that he could then enter into the presence of God. And then the second sacrifice done would be two goats. One goat would be placed on the altar and, and the hands of Aaron, the high priest, would be placed on the goat. And in doing so, he would be imputing, giving his sin and the sins of Israel onto that goat. And then they would sacrifice the goat and the blood of that goat would be laid on the other goat and the goat would be sent out of Israel's camp signifying that their sin has been separated from them. Their sin has been given to the goat and it has been separated from them, providing expiation for them. Again, to use a theological word. And then we rip this idea of, new, of atonement into the New Testament and we learn that Jesus is the perfect high priest and he is the true lamb that was slain. You see, he was the high priest who performed the sacrifice, and the sacrifice was of himself, where he who knew no sin became sin, where he bore our sins in his body on the tree, where he, according to Hebrews chapter 9, provided once for all a sacrifice for sinners. As his blood was spilled and it covered that woody Roman cross, 
It washed over you and I, cleansing us of all of our sin, past, present, and future. And as Jesus was buried in a grave, his body limp and breathless, there our sin went with him. Our sin is buried in a grave that was covered up 2,000 years ago, and it remains there. It has been sent out of the camp, and it is separated from us. And he didn't stay dead. He was raised to new life, putting death to death. And now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is our mediator, our high priest, and our intercessor. And he says, God, don't look on them and their sin. I stood in their place. He is the one who does our bidding. He is the one who says, Father, not them, but me. Father, forgive them and give me their judgment. Father, take away their sin and put it on my body. The only way you and I, whether we're sinner number one or sinner number two, can be in the presence of God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You understand this, right? It is not through your work. Those things are designed for your sanctification, but your salvation comes through Jesus alone. So if you came in here and you're the Pharisee, look at me, God, I'm so perfect. All these other losers in this room, kidding me? I'm so much better than them. Repent of that. Your work can't save you. Do not try to achieve what Christ has designed for you to receive. Maybe you're Bob. Maybe you came in this place happy in your sin. No desire to change. Repent of that. Turn from that. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make yourself perfect. You don't have to try. All you have to do is thrust yourself upon Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm trusting not in myself or my sin. I'm trusting in you alone. And in that very moment, you will go home justified. So how do we respond to this? If you're not a believer, again, prayerfully consider that Jesus, compelled by his love for you, entered into humanity, took on flesh, lived the life you couldn't, died the death you deserved, was raised to new life, and has said, I love you. Trust in him. If you are a believer, my hope and my prayer is you would be floored anew by the grace of Jesus. Whether your salvation is two days old or it's 50 years old, Jesus died for you. Jesus died a loathsome, brutal death for you. Are you stunned by that? The only reason why you're justified is not because of you, it's because of him. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his kindness and his mercy and his grace that through him and him alone, we are saved. Help us to believe that. Help us to live in that. Help us to receive that. Help us to worship you for that. Change our hearts, transform our lives, and may we be stunned again by your grace. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.